This is the last week that we're going to be tackling this here, uh, just because we're taking a little bit of a break next week, going into a, a Christmas series, and then in January, kind of a vision series for the year. Um, and tonight's topic, if you have your Bible, or this morning, um, it's been a long morning already, it seems like tonight. Uh, open your Bibles to, to Mark chapter 11, and we're going to be tackling a, a, a topic that it's, it's a little thick, it's a little difficult to get our minds around. It happens in two different locations, and, and I want us to get the structure of it, because I think if we get the structure of it, we'll get the meaning of it as well. And I want to read it kind of in two different locations to help us get that idea of movement and where Jesus is and what's going on. So in Mark chapter 11, verse 12, this is what we read. Now, Jesus is approaching the end of his life. This is the last week. He's spent most of his time outside of the capital city of Jerusalem. And now he is this last week in the city, but each night he goes out and, and spends the night at a small city called Bethany. And each day he goes into the city. We read one of these days. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. The next location, on reaching Jerusalem, the mountain, the capital city, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were there buying and selling. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written? He's talking about the Old Testament. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you, you've made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard him say this, and they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. And in the morning, as they went along, they saw that fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered, and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, which means teacher, the fig tree you cursed is withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Um, have you ever had a conversation with someone that was just a little ambiguous, like, like unclear? You guys are on maybe different, you know, different pages as to what's, what's really going on. Uh, a few years after I graduated college, uh, or was, it was actually pretty soon afterwards, I had, I, had, I had been dating this girl just kind of toward the end of college. I'd known her for like a year and a half, and, and, and I really liked her, um, but wanted to sit down and you know, kind of have a conversation. And so I sat down with her. I said, look, I, you know, I really like you. Um, but, you know, people start dating and they start thinking like long-term stuff, and they think long-term and, you know, they think like permanent. And it just, but, you know, I really like you, but I mean, marriage is a big deal. And, and so I just... Okay, a show of hands. How many of you would guess I'm having the breakup conversation? Any, any hands? 
Okay. How many of you would say, I think you're proposing to this girl? Okay. Okay. Well, you, you and the first group and my soon-to-be uh, bride were both wrong. I was proposing to her. And so I got down on one knee, I pulled out a ring, and I asked her to be my bride. And, and she just broke into tears, you know, and I'm thinking, this is good, because, you know, they're supposed to cry, they're excited. <laughs> and, uh, and she goes, I thought you were breaking up with me. And I was like, what are you talking about? What do you and she's like, well, you said, but marriage is a big deal. And I'm like, yeah. And she goes, well, I thought you were saying, like, I was pressuring you into marriage, and, you know, you're, this is, you know, I don't know what's... And I was just like, what are you talking about? Is this how it's going to be? Because I'm not, I'm having second thoughts now. I don't, I don't know about this. <clears throat> but, but apparently, it wasn't until I did something really concrete. I took out a ring, and I got down on one knee, that it brought clarity to all of the confusion, all of the ambiguity. And you'll be happy to know the past 15 years have been just ambiguity-free marriage. Never any more confusion <laughs> in our marriage. In Mark chapter 11, this passage, Jesus is in a, Jesus is in a similar circumstance. Um, he, ha he, he does some weird things in this temple, right? Remember when he goes over there and, and, and he does some things, he says some words that there's some ambiguity to. They're easily misunderstood. Um, and, and it's really not until he does something really concrete, not a ring and a knee, but a fig tree. That brings clarity to what he's saying at the temple. Um, why a fig tree? What's going on with that? First of all, let's try to kind of understand that. This doesn't mean a whole lot to us today. This seems kind of odd, um, but not to them. Doing what he did with that fig tree had shattering meaning to his Jewish hearers. See, in the Bible, there's this, in the Old Testament, there's this whole section of books that's called the prophets. And, and it's numerous different books in which God spoke to the people through these prophets, usually at a time when Israel was, was falling away from their purpose, not, not, not holding up to what he had called them to. And so you have examples. Uh, Micah, the book of Micah, chapter 7. God is grieving over the absence of righteousness in Israel. He says, it's like, you don't care about the poor. You've forgotten me. And, and the language he uses, he says, he compares himself to, uh, to an owner of a vineyard who shows up to get fruit from the fig tree. And when he shows up, it's like someone's already harvested it. It's all gone. In the, in the book of Hosea, another prophet, chapter 9, God says this, when I found Israel, he's talking about like when he first called them as a people, when I found Israel, when I saw your fathers, it was like seeing the early fruit on a fig tree. And he goes on to say, yet all their leaders are rebellious. He's saying they've fallen away, they've forgotten me. And he ends by saying, their root is withered and they yield no fruit. And whether you go to Joel or Jeremiah or all these other prophets, they continually come back to this picture word picture of a fig tree of saying that's like Israel and God is like the owner. And when they are failing to accomplish their purpose, the fig tree becomes sick and there's no figs produced. So do you see the strong filter? Okay, this is the book they read. This is, this is the filter they had anytime someone talks about or does something with the fig tree. So in verse 13 of this passage we read, Mark tells us that while going up to Jerusalem, to the temple, Jesus goes over to the fig tree, even though it's not seasoned for figs, okay? which is all more reason that says he didn't even expect to find figs on there. He has a deeper meaning. 
And it probably drew curiosity, like, what, what's he doing? Everyone knows there's no figs on a fig tree. So it's, it's drawing, stirring up curiosity at that moment. And here's the big idea. The big idea is that Jesus' actions around the fig tree, temple fig tree, the sort of sandwiched story here, Jesus is claiming that he is the rightful owner of the vineyard, Israel, and that when he shows up, he sees leaves without figs. He sees the appearance of life without the purpose of life. And so he pronounces final judgment on the temple. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the next days they come back, it's withered. And again, notice how Mark wants us to see how it's withered. Most withering happens from the outside in, the leaves. This happens from the inside out. The very roots are withered, showing that the source of the life of the tree, it's absolutely gone. So we oftentimes think of this passage as we use phrases like Jesus cleansing the temple. Because see, that happened. People would, would cleanse the temple for purpose, but that misses the severity of what Jesus is doing here. You go back in Jewish history. Have you heard of Hanukkah? Hanukkah is the celebration of way a long, long time ago in which the Maccabees cleansed the temple because it had been desecrated. And so they kind of got it ready to start doing sacrifice again. Jewish leaders cleansed the temple many times. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not cleansing it. He is condemning it. He's ending it. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. What is the purpose of the temple? Um, it, it's judgment because the temple had missed that purpose. So it would be helpful for us to get, okay, well, like, what did they miss? You know, expectations are big. What was the expectation upon this fig tree, upon Israel? Well, go back a long, long time ago, way back in the Old Testament. And one day in the wilderness, God said to his people, I want you to build me a little house, and it will be a tent, just like you live in a tent. And these 12 tribes were to, were to camp around this tent. There were to be three tribes to the north, three to the east, three to the south, three to the west. They were to live in the context and, and have this other tent in the very center. And it's very interesting in, in the Old Testament, the fact that when, when Israel lived in a tent, God lived in a tent, we call it a tabernacle. And when they got permanent structures, when they lived in houses, God lived in a house, we call it a, a temple. God says, I want you to build me a little house and it will be a reminder. Every time you look at that tent, Every time you look at that house, I want you to remember you're not alone, that I am with you, and I'm going to use this, this funny little tent to teach you how to do life with me. Starting next week, um, as I said, Pastor Derry is going to be going into a, a Christmas series. And this is something the church has been doing for, for centuries, this idea of celebrating something called Advent. Advent are those four Sundays prior to Christmas Day. And it's this idea of anticipation of the coming of God to be with us. Anyone know the, the word in the Bible that we use? We say at Christmas a lot to speak of God being with us, God with us. Yeah, Emmanuel, God with us. This was a revolutionary idea in the ancient world. And the temple was pointing to this idea God wants to be with us. 
a great deal of the Old Testament book of Exodus. If, if you've ever read through that, there's some stories in there that are easy to get through. And then there's these sections that it's like just crazy details of how God wants the construction of the tabernacle. So the first thing that we see in the tabernacle, that it was to be like a residence, the kind of residence that people in this ancient nomadic world would understand. Every day there was to be a golden lampstand, and it would be lit. And every day there was an altar, and it would burn incense. And every day there was a table. And this table had this cool name. It was called the Table of Presence. And on the Table of Presence, there were 12 loaves of bread, 12 tribes of Israel, enough food for all to eat. And, uh, and don't you just love the smell of bread? Like, isn't that one of my favorite places to go is like Great Harvest Bread Company. Anyone here work at Great Harvest Bread Company? You probably smell of that odor when you come out. Like the day that they do cinnamon swirl bread and you take it home and you make French toast with it, it's just, it's amazing. Like, let's take the offering now and just go. Let's all go over there to the Great Harvest Bread Company. But these, these symbols, okay, these things, kind of don't mean a whole lot to us, but, but they meant a lot to these people. See, the lit lampstand, the, the burning incense, the fresh bread, those were all common indications in this Middle Eastern nomadic culture that someone was at home. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Someone was at home, and they were saying, you are welcome here. I will care for you. I will feed you. I will leave the light on for you. This was a house, is what he was trying to communicate to them. Do you remember the snapshot we have of Jesus when he's like 12 years old? His parents lose him, and he's in the temple, and they come back, and they find him. And I remember they asked him a question. He said, don't you know that I had to be in my father's what? house? House. Jesus understood the purpose of the temple. And it's that understanding that when he gets to it, causes this scene. Israel was being taught about life with God, Emmanuel, through the temple, that it was really possible, and that they could actually order their daily activities, they could be informed by, they could center them around this idea that God wanted to be with them. John Ortberg, this author and pastor that I, I, I borrowed some of these thoughts from, has this idea where he says, he calls this the with God life. I love that, isn't that cool? Doing the with God life. We said that after tents, this place became a, a temple. And there was Solomon's temple. It was fantastic. God allowed Babylon to come in and wipe it out. Later, there was another temple built called Herod's temple. Now, Herod's temple is what Jesus would have gone to when he was there. It was this fantastic, if you see this image, the, the temple mount itself was enormous. It, it, it was the center of this whole area of the city. It, 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 it was the glory of this entire country. And in the temple, there were different courts or different areas for different groups of people. Any guesses the name of the largest court or the largest area on the temple precinct? It was about 35 acres. Now, I'll give you an idea, Timberline Church sits on 35 acres. This was called the Court of the Gentiles. Okay? Now, Gentile, Gentiles meant them, others. Gentiles were unclean. They didn't have the Ten Commandments. They didn't have the law. And yet the construction of this building was to teach Israel that there were those who did not know God, but that this with God life was offered to them 
as well. Now think about that. The largest part of the temple precinct was built for non-members. What places are like that? <laughs> it was built for those who were not there yet. This was the first indication that Israel was to be sensitive to the seeker. See, the law, the prophets, the temple, all of that, it was given to Israel, but it was for others. Okay, now think about that. It was given, the law, the temple, the prophet, it was given to Israel, but for others. Remember God's promise when God first called Abraham? You go way back to the book of Genesis. And when he first calls Abraham, he, he gives him these great promises, like, I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'll give you a great land. But all of those promises kind of have their focus in the last promise. And he says, but through you, meaning for others, through you, I'm going to bless the whole world, all the other nations, all the ones who aren't, from your perspective, in. I'm going to bless them. God was saying, I'm choosing you to be a special nation among all the others. Well, why is that? In order that through you, I will establish a, a toehold in this broken and dark world of mine. So that through you, I can bless all nations and, and draw them to myself. So while I love you, God said to Israel, I will make you a covenant people. I need you to know I'm not choosing you because you're any better than anyone else. You're just as blind. You're just as broken. And you're not exempt from punishment when you live like those nations around you. But I'm going to use you to open up the opportunity of a with God life, Emmanuel. The biblical phrase for this, how they understood their role, was they were to be a light to the Gentiles because they were blind as Israel had once been. And so through the temple, Israel was supposed to be sending out a message of invitation. But was that, is that what was going on when Jesus showed up to the house, the abode, the home, the temple, and he sees the largest section of it with this huge focus on the seeker, on the outsider? It was not a message of invitation. It was a message of exclusion. Totally opposite message. Have you ever sent like a, or found that you've communicated a message that is totally opposite than like what you, what you intended? Uh, I, I've got four kids. My, my third little girl named Serena, she's six right now. And when she was like four, um, my wife Kristen was driving her to church one night. And she's, I think it was just her in the car. And Serena's in the far back of her minivan and Kristen's just driving. And it was just quiet. And she said, Serena just started singing in her tiny little four-year-old voice, singing this song. And she goes, and I wonder if I ever cross your mind. Well, yes, you do, baby. I love you. Yeah, sweet. For me, it happens all the time. Really? That's, that's kind of bad. It's a quarter after one. I'm a little drunk and I need you now. <laughs> and Kristen's like, what in the world? Uh, hey, baby, let's not sing that song at church tonight. Let's, you know. Not, not exactly the message, you know, you want, you know, the pastor's kids walking into church. So if, if you're like a child care worker in that area and my kids come in saying like something uh, offensive, it's, you know, talk to mom, okay? Um, okay, but again, opposite message of what we want them to really get. This is this idea, now think about this in, in Mark chapter 11. 
it's precisely this central area, the court of the Gentiles. There was a clear message with that being there and being constructed the way it was for the Gentiles, for the outsiders. It was an invitation to the with God life. But the religious leaders had completely turned that around, sent a totally opposite message. So when Jesus showed up there, it looked more like an oriental bazaar. It looked completely different. The money changers were there because all of these Passover travelers coming from various parts around the Mediterranean world, bringing their, their local currency, they have to trade it with a particular shekel that is, that is valid at the temple. And then there's also animals being sold there. So, I mean, just imagine for a second, like to give us an idea of what this would be like. Imagine the frenetic pace of something like the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, okay? Money being sold and bought, then throw in livestock, okay? And that was the only place that God had dreamed up where these outsiders, estranged from God, would have an opportunity to see and learn about the with God life. See, the temple was where heaven touched earth. It was where the God of light invaded the darkness. It's where the with God life was seen. It's, it's where little babies were named. It's where, it's where children were dedicated to God. It's where sins were forgiven. It's where outsiders were welcomed. It's where nobodies became somebodies. It's where spiritually hungry people were fed. I got an email this last week from Donna Haggard, who's on our administrative staff, and she and a whole host of volunteers, might have been some of you, were, were, were out in our mall area much of this last week packing up uh, Operation Christmas Child shoe boxes and sending them around the world filled with, with toys and, and gifts, uh, sending them to kids who, who may have never owned their own toy. And she was giving me some numbers, and she said that... Uh, Fort Collins campus and our Windsor campus, you guys brought together 1,481 shoeboxes and sent out an awesome picture. And she was saying because we were kind of the distribution center, all the other boxes that came in from other churches and groups we were working with, 14,786 shoeboxes we sent off Tuesday. And you know what? Over each one of them, we prayed that this would be a tiny expression of the with God life to someone who, who may have never heard about it. And that is saying that it is available to all. The first of the year in January, Pastor Derry is going to be um, talking to us about, like, why do we exist, us, as a corporate body? Like, what's our purpose? Why are we here? Why has God placed us at this particular time in this particular location, thinking both locally and <clears throat> globally around the world? Because that, that might seem obvious, but if the temple missed it, we can easily miss it as well. So I think we need to continue to come back to that. What are you calling us to? What is our purpose? <clears throat> um, because apparently, when God's blessing to a people is turned inward versus, versus outside, God calls us thieves, right? den of robbers, and judgment comes. Now, by the way, verse 23, does anyone notice that there's this kind of almost odd insertion of Jesus like teaching about prayer in this passage? Listen to what he says in verse 23. <clears throat> he writes, or says, Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done 
for them. See, I grew up in a church context, and I heard people quote this, but it, w- it was always quoted almost as a sort of a divine Santa Claus, you can have whatever you want. If anyone says, you know, some crazy thing, you know, Mount Thurnacy, it'll be done for you, just believe it, and it's yours. And it was this, you know, kind of goofy promise. Now, never mind the fact that that is totally foreign to the text, that that would be something so bizarre in the context of what Jesus is doing here. And so the question we have to ask is, when he says this mountain, what mountain is he talking about? Because Israel's full of mountains, if you've ever been there or seen its geography. If anyone says to this mountain, now remember where he's going, remember the context. It's the morning after being on the Temple Mount. They've just seen the withered fig tree. He's on his way back up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the highest mountain around there. And the temple sits at the highest place on the highest mountain. Everyone speaks of going up to Jerusalem, up to the temple. When he says, if anyone says to this mountain, in the context, he must be speaking of the temple mount. He's telling his followers to engage in the kind of prayer against the power structures in our world which would exploit people and which would misuse God-given powers for themselves rather than turning them outward to invest in others. Now remember, that's exactly what the temple had been doing. That fits in the context, doesn't it? This is a prayer for God to establish his reign. The language we use is your kingdom come. And he says that's the prayer that God will always answer, and you could be 100% sure of it, because his kingdom is coming. And what his kingdom means when it comes is the suppression of oppression. And yet knowing how quickly even we who pray against that, you know, God, you know, break the evil ones, you know, break the power of, of this, knowing how easily pride can seep in there, well, I'm not like those people. I, I'm not oppressive, right? He gives this warning. He says, verse 25, and when you stand praying, meaning asking God to crush the evils of the world, if you hold anything against anyone, he says, forgive them so that your Father in heaven might forgive you. The right to pray this prayer he says, only belongs to the people who are transparent about their own tendencies towards sin, their own weaknesses, and their life. One last observation about the temple and what God intended to teach his people through it. The tabernacle or the temple, as we, as we might know, at least from these pictures, in the old tabernacle, there was a tent right in the center of it. And, and, and there was a holy place in the tent, which was separated from another place. This was at the very center. This was called the Holy of Holies. And again, because this is built around the house, think of this like a bedroom. It's like the most intimate place in a house. And it's very interesting. The materials that were used in this, so like the, uh, uh, you know, the metals, which might have been bronze in the courtyard or, or, or silver inside the initial part of the tent, inside the Holy of Holies, they were gold. In fact, everything, the, the entire room was inlaid with gold. It, and it was so holy that it could only be entered one time a year, the seventh day of the tenth month. It could only be entered by one person, the high priest. And he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the place of atonement. And on that one day, all of Israel, nobody would work. Nobody would eat. They would all fast. And they would wait. Is the high priest going to come out? 
Will our sins be forgiven? Is God still with us? This was all in preparation for one day when the great high priest, Jesus, would make the great sacrifice, not an animal, but his own blood, on the death, his death on the cross, and accomplish the great atonement, the great payment for the forgiveness of sins to restore God's purpose. His purpose was everywhere. It was woven throughout everything. And that key purpose, and this is really cool, is that everywhere should be God's residence. Everywhere should be the holy of holies. Some of you know that when Jesus died, there was a curtain which separated the holy place from the holy of holies, the golden room. And when he died, it, it was torn from, from top to bottom. And it wasn't so much the idea that, that, that now we could get in. It was the idea that God's presence was coming out. You go to the very end of the story, the final vision, the book of Revelation. John says that he had a vision of what that'll be like. He calls it new heavens, new earth. And in that vision, he says, there's a city. He says, and the streets of the city. Now think, in the ancient world, streets are dirt. It's like the most common thing. It's what you have to wash off your feet. The streets are paved with what? Gold. Inlaid gold. Now this is, this is not because Donald Trump was its builder, right? There's a purpose. He's trying to tell them something. And they get it real quickly because they knew the tabernacle. It was inlaid. It was paved with gold. Second thing we're told is that this new heavens, new earth, the city, when he speaks of where we are being with God, this is how he describes it. He says it's four square, meaning its length is exactly the same as its width. Now, this is not a coincidence. The reason he says this is because the holy of holies was four square. Its length exactly the same as its width. In other words, here's what the Bible is saying. A day is coming when all of creation, including this part right here, including your parts, including your workplaces, including your homes, including everywhere, all of creation itself will be the holy of holies because it will be perfect, it will be indwelt, and it will be ruled by God. And that day is coming, there is no doubt, it is for sure. And the temple and the tabernacle were always pointing to God wanting to be with us. This is why in John chapter 1, speaking of Jesus, it uses the same language and it says this, uh, the word became flesh. It's talking about Jesus' incarnation coming. The word became flesh and made his dwelling. You could also translate that tabernacle among us. He tabernacled among us. Jesus was the full expression of what that temple was pointing to. So here's the question that I want to kind of end with. How do we live with God between the two poles? Christ came, the true temple, and yet this future picture in which everything is bathed in the presence of God, we're, like we're living in between. How do we live in between these two poles? I think there's a key, a really interesting language. 1 Corinthians 6:19. the Bible says this, speaking of the follower of Christ, do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you? With whom you, whom you received from God, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God 
with your bodies. What, what if the reason you and I exist is, is to be an intersection between heaven and earth in this world that, that still has a lot of darkness, where people hear God saying among us, you are welcome here. I will care for you. I will feed you. I will leave the light on for you. What, what if you were intended to be a place where outsiders are invited in, where nobody's become somebody's, where spiritually hungry people find that, that bread of life, where lonely people are embraced, where, where trafficked young girls and boys aren't exploited, but they're invested, where people who, who are tired find rest for their souls in the shelter of this one who said something like, um, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. What, what if all those qualities and things that, that you have, that God has blessed you with, what if they were given to you, but for everyone else in your life? What if God dreamed of placing here in Fort Collins or local areas, not a funny little tent, but a funny little person named you and me with the purpose of offering the with God life to people in our circles? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your great purpose. Thank you for your purpose to be with your people. There is nothing more mind-blowing than the idea that the infinite being of the universe, God, would want to be with us broken, blind, faulty, sinful creatures. And yet you love it. You relish it. You go to any extent to reach it. Father, I pray for the person in this room who maybe just, just needs to hear that you want to be with them. God, you want to you want to be with them in areas where maybe they haven't quite invited you. Maybe it's, maybe it's finances. Maybe it's a, mar it's, a, it's a marriage which is just on the rocks. And maybe it's other relationships, friendships. And maybe they've compromised how God wants to be with them. Father, I also want to pray for those who, who maybe need to be reminded of what your purpose is for them. That you call them, God, to not be focused on the blessings being to them, but for others. The influence that they have on grandchildren, neighbors, or coworkers. Help them to see, God, that your purpose is that your redemptive love would splash out over them onto others. And finally, God, I want to pray for that person who, who maybe would say, I'm not doing life with God, but I would like to. I would like to step into a relationship with God through his son, Jesus. I would like to be a child of the king. I would like to be a place where God brings this with God life to others. Thank you that you answer yes to those prayers always, God. Thank you for instructing us, for building us. God, don't let us live a life in which we fail to live up to your purpose for us. We pray this in the strong and powerful name of your son, the true temple, the full, ex full expression of who you are, Jesus. And we all said together, amen, amen.